Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And coming up today, we've got... What have we got? We've got No May May. It's obviously been and gone, but we're going to be talking a bit about how you can extend that throughout the year, which is very exciting. We also have the second half of Dr. Abigail Lowe's interview. And this month's plant of the month is Veronica spicata, which the RHS doesn't think is a native plant. I've been having a... It's a my mission <laughs> to convince the RHS that it's a native plant, which it is. It's an admiral. But if you yeah go on their website, then it says it's not, but they're wrong. They are wrong. <laughs> but before all of that, we're going to do our sightings. So let's start with the doom and gloom. This podcast, apart from this small section, is going to be all positive news, all good. We but... don't like glossing over the reality, though, do we? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So Let's do it. We are calling this the silent spring. Yeah. Because, well, we are outside all day every day basically given our job and we spend a lot of time in nature reserves and round and about and the fact is that it's silent out there certainly where we live absolutely heartbreaking ben well both of us have stood in front of wildflower meadows like as you said on twitter probably millions of flowers in these areas and we see very very little and it's not just anecdotal we we've put some stuff out on twitter and people have responded similar things across the uk but also professional entomologists people out there officially recording are noticing exactly the same thing so this is actually happening right now yeah so what we're talking about is the lack of insects that are around and about now and like ellie said there's there's anecdote you know an anecdotal report would be something like well actually in the garden we were in yesterday there's a really large dutzia beautiful flowering shrub this time last year absolutely full of bumblebees in fact it was uniquely spectacular wasn't it you could it hear it about i don't know in four gardens away it was that loud it was amazing yeah and and this year there's there's two bees on the whole shrub we were yeah. there yesterday so so that's an anecdotal report but lots of people are noticing this. And the difference we've been saying is when the county recorders are saying this is the lowest level of, of invertebrate life that they've seen. Because the county recorders are usually quite a sort of steady bunch of people, aren't they? You know, yeah. they, they like to wait for the data to come in. They don't jump to, to conclusions. Um, but we've seen thread after thread online on Twitter saying that this is the lowest number of invertebrates yeah. that they've ever seen. And like Ellie said, people like George McGavin... You know, Ian Bedford, who we've had on the show, Dave Goulson, yeah. Nick Gates, Stephen you know, Fault. really serious people all saying the same. And and there is a difference between North and South, it seems though. Yes. And you shared a map, Ben, on Twitter from last summer. It was a really, really noticeable difference between North and South in terms of how the drought affected the UK. There's a distinct line sort of running from the Northeast down to the Southwest, if that, I think that's right. Yeah, just about where everything north of this line is green still. And we know this when we went to West Yorkshire to visit your mum last year when it was barren in Nottingham. Yeah, we went within the space of a week from where my grandma lives, which is down in Lincolnshire, where it was like Savannah. Yeah. And then up to where my mum lives in West Yorkshire, where it was and green it was and, like, and lovely. It was like there was no drought almost. I yeah. mean, obviously it was hot, but it just it was still green and it's very noticeable. So we do think that potentially there, yeah, there's a big difference between north and south and the south is particularly badly hit in terms of, I mean, loads of things nest underground. All the eggs laid last summer could have desiccated. There was very little vegetation for caterpillars to feed on. All of this is going to have a knock-on effect on this year, for sure. We talk about this all the time. You need plants because a lot of the insects have a plant-eating part of their life cycle. A lot of the larvae of 
of loads of stuff butterflies and moths we know of but hoverflies as well lots well lots of the different flies and and beetles too they require leaf matter and certainly you know in our part of the country and further south and to the east the hedgerows had dropped all their leaves you know trees were dropping their leaves and and that's their food source gone so what we think has happened basically is that this north south divide is basically where the 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 food uh, had disappeared now insects can recover very quickly and last year was an anomaly it was our first ever 40 degree year but it looks like we're going to get more 40 degree years and how long is it before we have two 40 degree years in a row um so we're going to stop there on this because we're actually going to do a a full episode later in the year on climate change gardens what you can do about it but um, it's not going to be a, a pleasant episode to listen to, really. Um, but yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to stop with the doom and gloom there. But uh, it is something definitely that's that's worth looking out for. But one last point on this, and this is sort of turning it into a positive, but this is more what can you and I do, as well as all the wildlife gardening, which does make a difference. But we think that this is a really galvanising thing to try and get more gardeners, people like you and me, Ben, actually recording numbers officially and sending the data in to things like iNaturalist. It's never been so easy to actually do that. We've got, most of us got smartphones now and all that data is so, so useful. It's the only way we know that insects are in trouble because the last 80 years we've got all this fantastic data. I mean, it's sad news, but at least we know there's a problem and that means we can maybe do something to solve it. In the show notes, I'll put uh, some of the recording schemes that you can get involved in in your garden. Yeah. Because there's wider countryside ones and then there's quite a few garden ones, including uh, the Buzz Club, which is quite a recent one that's just started up. So with that out of the way, now let's talk about what we have seen. Yes, we have seen this is the best. We have had a blackbird fledgling. They've been really quiet this year. Normally, we absolutely know when they're nesting. We know almost the stage of development based on what the adults are doing, but they've been covert. And it went from, are the blackbirds there? To... There's a baby blackbird, which is great. And, in our garden. In and, our it's, garden. and it was at a really strong flying stage. So I think there's a good chance that it was a, a successful fledge and it could get away from cats because yeah. there's a lot of cats around here. So that is excellent news. Very it's happy. Really, well done, really well done blackbirds. Yeah. <laughs> Back onto the invertebrates. What I have seen, and I'm getting a really good eye for this now, <laughs> is bumblebee nests. And I've spotted three, is it three or four in the gardens that we look yeah. after? Yeah, you've got um, like a, a weird bumblebee nest antennae going up. Someone yeah. named you Bumblebee Ben yeah. the other day, <laughs> which I think is quite nice. Yeah, we found one in a lawn. We found one in a herbaceous border, which has got a sort of rocky, it's a low sort of dry stone wall at the front. And there was a little hole where I saw them come out there. And the final one, at, oh, it was in a, a veg garden that we look after. And it's bordered by sleepers. And between... One of the sleepers and a paving slab. There's a there's a little gap and yeah, white-tailed bumblebees going in and out there. So what you're looking out for with bumblebees is a small hole, maybe about an inch across. Something with bees like that. coming out of it. With bees coming out of it, <laughs> yes, obviously. But it's it can be quite inconspicuous and yeah. they'll often nest in old mouse holes and things like that so yeah look out for that and on the bumblebee front i was waiting for you to pick me up in a really grotty car park but there was a bit that sounds dodgy (laughs) i will not disclose anything else no i was waiting for ben to pick me up and there was this hawk bit just sitting there and i moved closer to have a little look and there was a little white-tailed bumblebee having 
genuinely asleep. It looked like it had just been eating and then just gone, okay, I've had enough of this and then had a nap. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, and I thought, okay, I'll watch this for a while because, you know, it's really easy to think that things need rescuing. I think this is a tendency I certainly have. Yes. And it's really important to know that bumblebees do rest. It's part of their daily strategy. They need a nap just like we do. Exactly. And after a few minutes, this bumblebee woke up, it started feeding on a nearby flower and then it, it flew off. It was lovely. And I got some really good macro shots of it because I had my little lens with me, which was really good. And the next thing, Ben, am I allowed to get really, 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 really excited about? Well, yes. I mean, I know what's coming. <laughs> yeah. I'm still feeding off the joy of this, but I was uh, weeding in a border and the ground started moving. And oi, oi. thankfully, <laughs> well, literally it was like that for me. <laughs> that's how excited you get (laughs) it really was i'm not even joking but basically i almost got a poplar hawkmoth with my trowel thankfully i didn't near miss this thing was absolutely stunning i've never come across one hawkmoths are funny i feel like i can't just go out there hoping to see it it just they just arrive when they want basically and yeah I mean we got some really good photos I showed our customer who said it it honestly cheered both of them up like they were really really happy as well moths can bring joy to the world what can I say and and then a week later I had a tip off from a friend that a a hawk moth was just on a bin outside a vet that they were visiting and of course I got on my bike and I went to the vets like a weirdo (laughs) (laughs) And there was another poplar hawk moth, but it was the lighter version of the same moth. Yeah, the first one was dark grey. Yeah. And this one was sort of a buff colour. Buff colour with a sort of very faint hint of pink in the wind. Mm. Both of them absolutely stunning. I honestly couldn't be happier. She got a text in the morning and said, I've got a tip off from a contact about a moth on a bin. <laughs> I didn't tell Ben where I was going. I was like, what contact? <laughs> who are these? It was really early in the morning. Like, who are these scouts you've got searching urban Nottingham uh, for bin moths? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I have my contacts. <laughs> Watch out. Yeah. Oh, another big one. We've got a lot of gardens that we've been maintaining organically and for wildlife now for quite a few years. And I think it's doing the trick. And one of the ways we know is because we now have signs in five of our gardens of hedgehogs. Yes. Well, most of the signs of activity is a nice way of saying we've seen their poo. It's a turd. Yeah, <laughs> we've seen their poo <laughs> in the gardens that we're looking after. Where they there was no sign of them before. Mm. You know, this is completely new this year. And we've got one garden we were at a couple of days ago where we've seen a nest built. Yeah. And this is in a border where Ellie had left just a huge huge pile of leaves just to rot down over the winter and the hedgehogs collected them all up into sort of a just a great big mound and you can actually see the entrance hole where they're going in and out uh yeah it's fantastic now we were on an online call last year uh, a local group to us called wild ng they'd organized uh, a talk about hedgehogs and they had a couple of different people speaking one of which was the people's trust for endangered species and they were saying the numbers are actually looking quite good they're on the up in urban areas Rural areas, pictures not so good, but maybe we're actually starting to see the signs of that in the gardens that we look after. Yep, and we now can tell all of our customers that have these signs, i.e. a big poo in the middle of the lawn. A little poo. Sorry, little poo. What to do to help the hogs in their garden. So we're going to be busy making holes in walls and fences and making sure water's been left out if there isn't a pond already there. Yeah, and incidentally, all of these gardens, I think I'm right in saying, leave their lawn long. 
over yeah, the summer. Yep, you're right. Yep. You know, that could be the key thing because, of course, the hedgehog's going after the beetles, all the sort of grubs that would yeah. be in that lawn. I also had a, a really quite funny sighting, which I just, I'll just very quickly gloss over. But I saw heron versus crow. It was a flyby. There's no pond in this garden, so the heron had nothing for it. But it just, it was like... I don't know, five meters above my head, a heron flew in, really agile, with a crow in close pursuit. I mean, that was pretty spectacular. <laughs> yeah, and in, you know, the next film after Heron versus Crow is uh, Crow v Pigeon, which is what I saw two days ago. Set the scene early morning, walking up the road, and on a uh, just a roof, there was a, a pigeon and a crow, just one of each. And the crow was having a go at the pigeon, but the pigeon won. It actually go it was pigeons. puffed up. Yes. It was pecking, properly pecking at the crow, and it forced it off. About 10 seconds or so later, the crow flew back. It circled around and it landed on a chimney. And then it did a few crows. You, you know, did a impression? few calls. No, you can. Okay. Ah, 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 ah. Yeah, perfect. Exactly that. Thank you. Exactly Thank that. You. So that happened. And then... Four crows that I couldn't see suddenly swooped in and dive-bombed this pigeon. <laughs> I mean, crows are intelligent, but that has got to be like proper language. It really right? is. Right, let's talk about No Mo May. As we are recording this, it's the first week of June. So some of you might be wondering what to do with the gardens that you've been looking after. And we've already explained that No Mo May, of course, is fantastic for hedgehogs and all sorts of other creatures as well. Now, Plant Life came up with a No Mo May idea and it's been super, super successful. But they also talk about Let It Bloom June and Knee High July. So basically they want to encourage people to carry this on all the way through the year. And we know that this isn't practical in every garden because some people do need areas of shorter lawn if you've got kids or maybe if you've got pets. But what I think most people could do is to leave a patch unmown for the whole year. So you can rotate this on a yearly basis. It doesn't have to be the same area. So actually you have a really nice opportunity to make your garden look different every year as well with a really simple technique of not doing anything to it. But we also as well as leaving a patch unmown, we will mow maybe a big patch on a high mow setting. And this allows things like daisies to flower. I actually saw a bee feeding on a daisy yesterday. So it's a really important floral resource and suddenly makes your grass a much, much better food source for creatures. And finally, then you can still then mow an area on a shorter setting. And this is still really good, actually, because quite a few things will feed in really and live in really short grass, like a lot of the mining bees. So if you have all three of those habitats going on, then you've immediately increased the diversity potential for just what used to be a single habitat. Yeah, and we've done this from really big lawns to really small ones, just a half a metre square, which we've left long yeah. for the year. And then we've mown a mixture of sort of the highest setting on our mower for some bits and then other bits really short. And that's sort of a, a lawn four by four metres, something like that. Um, so you can really do this at home. And the long bits, ideally, leave until October, something like that, and cut them down. And if you want to be really adventurous, have a couple of long bits and cut 
most of them down in October, but leave one section standing right the way through to the following year because that allows all the stuff that's nesting down to have a little sort of protection over the winter and then to come out the following spring. And let's not forget that birds can use that dry grass next spring to build their nests because that's another resource they really need. So to celebrate Nomo May, we have the final instalment from this year's Wildlife Garden Forum Symposium. Over the last couple of episodes, we've heard from Professor Dave Goulson, uh, also from Rob Jacks with the British Trust for Ornithology. And this time we have a short piece from Mark Schofield of Plant Life. The full length talks from each of these speakers can be listened to for free on the Wildlife Garden Forum's website, which is simply wlgf.org. Uh, so, as always, links in the show notes, but that's enough waffle from me. Here is Mark Schofield from Plant Life talking about the importance of wild plants and wild lawns. So, thank you very much uh, for the invitation to join you this evening. Great um, to join you all. And um, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk on behalf of Plant Life to reimagine the British lawn. Let's say half a million hectares of urban gardens are out there, which account for about 30% of urban areas. And if we can allow ourselves to assume that perhaps a quarter of, of that area is devoted to lawns, given that some will be driveways, some patios, some decking, well, that's, let's say, about 125,000 hectares. That's larger than all the national nature reserves in England combined, and it's about the size of Bedfordshire. If we manage our lawns with less frequent mowing and collecting the cuttings, that will result in a biodiversity uplift of the species growing in our lawns, which has the effect of enabling lawns to capture more carbon and hold onto it in the ground below. That's some 20 megatons of carbon dioxide equivalent, equivalent to the domestic annual emissions of heavy goods vehicles in the UK. Now, you might well ask, well, how does a more diverse lawn capture and hold on to more carbon? Well, greater plant diversity is actually a nature-based solution. Ecologists call it niche stratification, but imagine different plants with roots rooting to different depths, all able to tap into resources at different heights in different ways at different times in the growth season. So they're better able to share the same space and there's, there's some complementarity. With that in mind, roots start to ramify more of the volume of the soil, with a lower fertility, more fungi are present, and all of that combines to constitute the soil organic matter underneath our lawns. And it's a solution to climate change that we can be part of. In fact, grasslands are really important for the way in which they capture and hold on to our, our carbon. They account for 40% of the Earth's land surface. That's over a third of terrestrial carbon reserves. And it's 90% of the carbon that's stored below the ground. Don't forget, Structure of vegetation is so important because it's not all about the nectar and pollen. It's about the, you know, the root gnawers, the shoot borers, the leaf chewers, the sap suckers, the gall formers, the leaf miners, all of those too. So very important for our biodiversity. You could imagine a passing Martian in his flying saucer looking down at us and wondering which species was actually in charge. Is it humans or is it turf grass? Because we seem to be enslaved by this ideal to maintain grass in this ideal state. We seem to have set ourselves a Sisyphean task that we can never really uh, achieve. We've chained ourselves to an oar by needing to mow every week through the growing season. And we just keep pulling on that oar. What are we, why are we doing this to ourselves? Well, I'd like to offer you an alternative, the multifunctional law. So thinking of those droughts in 2018 and 2022, it was the grass that turned brown as it became dormant. It was the broad-leaved flowering plants that were still green and still flowering. So the more of those broad-leaved herbaceous perennial plants we can incorporate into our lawns, the better adapted we are to climate change, summer uh, heat, 
and the more resilient our lawns will be. Do come and visit our website to look at ways in which you can start your own meadow from scratch if you have pretty boring uh, turf to start with, or how you can enhance what you already have. If you want to start from scratch, you might cut and collect the, the herbage, then strip the turf, scarify the regrowing uh, weeds to exhaust the weed seed bank before you then plug plant and sow with wild seeds. You can also weaken turf grass with black plastic too. There are two phases of establishment when you create your own meadow. The establishment year following sowing is to mow frequently so that you top the invasive weedy annuals and confer an advantage to the establishing perennials. And after that first year, you can then go on to meadow management with just two mows a year um, and allowing for flowering. If you're augmenting what's already quite good, you can scarify to 50% your bare soil and over sow that. You can clear patches and plug plant it or sow into those patches. You can also introduce yellow rattle as a, a way to parasitize grass and weaken it in favor of establishing wildflowers. If you're starting with a space that's dominated by tall growing coarse grasses and you can see nettle, thistle, dock, cleavers and hogweed, all indicators of high fertility and the growth height is very tall. Well, consider cutting three to four times per year to begin with. You can be more aggressive and you might have May and even early July cuts. Try to cut that creeping thistle back when the flowers are in bud to really reduce that plant's vigor. Once you've uh, started to lower the growth, reduce the growth rate, and there are more wildflowers and finer grasses, then you can move into meadow management. So the restorative phase then perhaps involves the restorative cut earlier in the season, followed by the hay cut, and then the aftermath cut. Try, uh, as has been said already, to source locally, organically, of UK provenance uh, and occurring locally. Please try to keep the wild in wildflower. We have a publication about that. But I'd like to leave you with the thought that more sympathetic management of your lawn can mean that you have a cheap, low maintenance, low input, easy to maintain, perennial herbaceous border. You don't need to weed, feed or water through even our hottest summers. Thank you very much. Talking of plant life, in a neat little segue, we've actually got a really exciting announcement to share with all of you. We're now writing a column about wildlife gardening for the Plant Life magazine. We're in print. Well, but you are. You've done the first one. Yeah, yeah, we've only got one so far. Yeah, it's only available to members, but I know lots of you listening might be supporters of Plant Life already. So when the magazines arrive on your doorstep, do look out for our first article. And Plant Life is a really, really fabulous charity. We love all their resources on our native flora. We very much use it for our native plant of the month. And recently, we also went to one of their reserves in the Peaks. Now, this is called Deepdale, and it is just magnificent. It's, I think, Ben, I've, you go sort of derry-eyed when you step on into the car park there because it's just wonderful, isn't it? The range of plant life in this reserve is just, I mean, I'm, I'm going derry-eyed now. It's just absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Loads of mossy saxifrage out, meadow saxifrage. There's lots of orchids out. It's Eagle. Just, uh, it's just, it's really magnificent. I actually end up having a little nap next to the orchids, which I think was the most uh, romantic thing I've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> it was so nice. Yeah, it's glorious. Really, uh, really and glorious. And I also, I spotted a really good bird. I saw a red start. Yay! Yeah, it's a call, a bird call I didn't recognise. So I honed in on it with my binoculars and there it was, a red start. So this, I mean, this reserve is just beautiful. It's great for loads of different things. 
all sorts of charities look after reserves for their plants, but plant life are specifically focused on it yeah. and, and their reserves are something special. So if you're not already a member, I encourage you to become one where you will get our magazine. Everybody can go onto their website, learn a load of stuff and find where the other reserves are around the country. We are very excited to bring you the second half of our interview with Dr Abigail Lowe. She is Community Science Officer at the Natural History Museum and an expert on pollinators and the plants they visit following her PhD work at the National Botanic Garden, Wales. If you haven't heard the first half, go back and listen to the previous episode. But continuing the chat from last time, we join Ellie as she asks Dr Lowe about a particular study where she looked at the different foraging habits of bumblebees, solitary bees and hoverflies. You found a real difference between the forage preferences of hoverflies and bees. Both seem to like lesser celandine and daisies early in the year, but later on the hoverflies tended to prefer angelica, hogweed and rebecca, while the bees went off to their thistles, knapweeds and a wider range of garden plants. What reasons did you find for those differences between them? Yeah, so I did find a lot of sort of shared resources um, with the bees and the hoverflies. So the hoverflies were using the thistles and knapweeds uh, in the summer, but to a much lesser degree than with the bees. And instead they were using the angelica and the hogweed. I didn't look sort of in depth at why this was the case, but it is likely due to the morphology of the plants. So the thistles, knapweeds and catsia have got these long corollas, um, which means that the they need a long tongue to to get in there and hoverflies do have a wide difference in tongue length they're not particularly short tongued or long tongued but the ones that I sampled did tend to have shorter tongues overall than the bees that I looked at and so this might have had an influence in them sort of maybe having a bit of um, difficulty in accessing the um, thistles and the knapweeds and the catsia whether it was the longer-tongued hoverflies that were accessing them. I didn't actually look at that. But yeah, the angelica and the hogweed, they've got a lot you know, shorter, more open flowers. Uh, and so the hoverflies probably found this a bit easier to, to access it. And, and the same, the reverse really. So bees do tend to use angelica and, and hogweed, but like barely, barely anything compared to the hoverflies. But the hoverflies did use the thistles and the knapweeds more than the bees used the angelica and the hogweed so yeah it was it was really interesting and if, if you look at angelica and hogweed in the summer that you'll see so many flies like just covered in it yeah. so yeah they they do love it they can dab can't they with yeah their shorter on average tongues mm. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i think one of the recommendations that came out of that was that these plants of pollinators lists should at the very very minimum discern between what's good for bees and what's good for hoverflies and it's that's a real visceral like outcome from your study yeah definitely so that's one of the the main problems with the, these recommendation lists really is that they're just they're just suited for all pollinators um and throughout the year uh, and we know that bees and hoverflies and all other pollinators are using different things throughout the year as we've sort of talked about with the honeybees if different groups are using different resources then the recommendation lists need to reflect that um, and that's what the first paper from my PhD aimed to do was not to create this, you know, be and end all recommendation list, but just to sort of give a start to 
what sort of things we should be trying to include in recommendation lists. Fascinating. One interesting result was how popular Himalayan balsam, which we know is invasive, was with the honeybees, but not with the other species. Did you look at why that might be? So the reason that we saw less uh, Himalayan balsam coming up in our results for the the bumblebees and some of the other wild pollinators is due to where it's located in the garden. Um, So Himalayan balsam is uh, often on sort of waterways and rivers, and that's right at the edge of the nature reserve uh, at the Botanic Garden, so Wineland National Nature Reserve. And that is quite far away from where I was uh, tending to sample the insects. So honeybees can fly they tend to fly like um, a couple of kilometers, but they can fly, you know, up to distances of 10, 14 kilometers wow. if they really, really, really want something. Yeah. Um, you know, the 14 kilometer is more in, in a really um, barren sort of landscape, but um, they would be going to get the, the Himalayan balsam, whereas the um, bumblebees and solitary bees have a much smaller um, sort of flight range. So bumblebees um, only sort of one to two kilometers with tend to fly. And then the solitary bees are, um, you know, about 500 meters from the nest. So if the Himalayan balsam is way over um, loads of fields, then the, the solitary bees have not got any sort of hope of finding it. So that's, that's, the reason that we we saw a lot less uh, Himalayan balsam um, for the uh, insects, but that sort of leads on to the, um, something I did want to say, which was that uh, the absence of uh, any sort of plant species in any of our results doesn't necessarily mean that they don't use it. Um, so we just know what they use and how they use it, sort of in comparison to the other things that they use. But we know that there were um, plants which we know are very, we, you know, we see are very popular with with bees so for example lavender and we just get a lot less of that um sort of in the in the results and that might be due to you know how much of it is in the landscape or where we were sampling from but also there's limitations in the dna so how uh, well the dna can um, split certain uh, species or genera and um the mint family there's just like it's, it's just a bit harder than than some of the others that's interesting so that's where the sense checking comes in is really important in this yeah. yeah, really important. And, you know, building that reference library and having sort of, uh, so Dr. Natasha DeVere, my supervisor, like her real knowledge of all of these plant genes and how they differ between each species is vital for being able to say, yes, okay, we can tell apart these species and we can't tell apart those. And um, Crataegus, Cotoniaster, and Malus are one of those um, groups of species that we just have quite we have a bit of difficulty in telling them apart but it's really funny because um in the microscopy as well so in the um 1952 survey that ASC deans did those species are all lumped together as well with prunus so when you okay. look at the microscopy and the dna it's, it's sort of similar in terms of some things that they can and can't identify right your research shows overall that we shouldn't just talk about whether a plant is good for pollinators And as gardeners, we know of certain plants that we always recommend, which we do know are good, like malice and things like that. But are there any plants or plant groups that you would recommend to gardeners from your studies that are generally useful for a wide range of pollinators? Yeah, so as you sort of touched upon earlier in the podcast, bramble is the thing that comes out time and time again as being good for all sorts of pollinators, not just in our work, but in other um, studies. But you know, obviously that's not necessarily maybe like a recommendation for all gardeners. Um, but yeah, trees, hedgerows, things like malus, prunus, cotoneaster. Um, I don't really like to give 
recommendations just because it's so context specific to what people what sort of garden they've got what sort of garden they want to have um I think the really important thing is which probably just comes up time and time again is is making sure that there's a diversity of plants available in the garden sort of throughout the year and that's what that first paper from my PhD was was aiming to do was just to make a more specific recommendation list so you know you could have some plants in your garden which are good for hoverflies and some plants in your garden which are, are good for for other things but yeah that recommendation list really is is just sort of like a starting line it's not you know a, a the, the be and end all really mm. um and I just think put things in your garden and if things don't come to you know like sort of do a bit of an experiment yourself you know um go with the recommendations but you might not get some of the the species that, that other people get and you know as long as you're not planting things which are known to not be very beneficial to bees and hoverflies then it's probably gonna it's probably gonna be all right you know yeah. like just have a garden which is full of color and diversity and, and things like that that's what we say as well mm. plant more plants is what we're talking about yeah. with our little motto just we don't just mean like quantity we mean different varieties yeah. like the diversity thing's really really important and also hedges for edges so yeah a mixed native hedge of whatever it is you fancy is just really really good um yeah I think that's a really nice uh nice recommendation we try not to be too prescriptive as well yeah although we do our native plant of the month where we basically try and encourage everyone to put something in because it's just interesting we're more about trying to get people excited about the plants that we see that people might just take for granted so Mm -hmm. yeah we've got a lot of willow just like this popped up in my dad's garden now just because we've done this thing of just not really looking at sort of looking after it in a way where you're not tent like being very manicured and there's just some crazy willow going on and there's bits <laughs> of rubus and there's also some like horticultural plants so like that that's really nice but um you can have a manicured garden which is full of you know beds and you've got the diversity of the native and the non-natives and the color and the flower shape as well so color flower shape seasonality all of those things um they'll all contribute and um yeah I think you've said this on the podcast before like it's not a complete ban on something you know you can have these double-headed roses in your garden um just just not a full garden full yeah of <laughs> yeah just make sure that there's something else in there mm. um yeah that's what I like to to encourage is, is just having a diversity excellent we read in one of your papers about the June gap is that a time of year that gardeners should be focusing on yeah, so the June gap is a bit of a thing with beekeepers in particular. Um, so it's a period of resource limitation um, that they tend to see in June, thought to be due to um, the sort of gap between strong nectar flow in the spring and strong nectar flow in the summer. And the reason that beekeepers have sort of anecdotally observed this um, period of resource limitation is because they often have to uh, give their hives uh, supplemental food. So things like um, fondant or, or sugar in other ways. And the idea is that, you know, honeybees should not be starving in the middle of summer. Uh, and so if they're having to do that, then there's obviously an issue. So the third paper from my PhD actually looked at sort of this uh, and how hives were um, changing in in the resources that they use throughout the year. 
and it's thought that the hives will be more similar in the way that they forage when the resources, their preferred resources are really abundant. And what we find is that there are big differences in foraging in June, which supports this idea that there's not an abundant preferred resource available at that time. And we also found that our hives were lacking in honey stores as well. So that sort of corresponds. And June is also the time where the honeybees switch between trees, which is in April and May, to shrubs, which is in July. And so they use a bit of both in June. And it's this idea of, you know, if they're, if they can switch between those two resources really successfully, then we wouldn't see any resource limitation, but they're obviously not managing to do that. So is there a gap, you know, in June? We, we think so. Um, and there's actually been work that has looked at that in bumblebees as well. So um, Dr. Tom Timberlake from um, the research group at Bristol um, was looking at nectar flow on farmland uh, for bumblebees. And he um, sort of quantified the the nectar which was available throughout the year and did see that really strong peak of nectar in April and May and then one in July, which shows that, you know, if if that's what's happening um, in terms of like quantifying it, we didn't quantify it in the garden, but it makes sense um, given what we know about the phenology. You know, we've been doing the, um, the floral surveys as well and it all just makes just makes sense that there is this period um, where they're not doing as well as as they should, um, and you know how we sort of bridge that gap between the spring resources and the summer resources is obviously quite important. Mm. Um, we need to make sure that there's yeah abundant resources available at that time rather than just there's plenty of resources available. You know, so I looked at whether there were, was any flowers at the garden in June, and there's plenty, but I think it's that big chunks of resources so things like trees and rubus they flower in big patches um and so whilst it's not always the most abundant plants in the landscape that are being used most it is the the ones which are maybe like denser so it's it's really complicated and it needs a lot more research to be honest um but it's yeah it is a an issue i think with not just honeybees but i think with with wild pollinators as well so if a Solitary bee has got a, a much shorter life cycle than a um, than a honeybee or a bumblebee. They might be more affected if they're sort of emerging in June and they've only got a few weeks and there's not much yeah. available. Then they might be um, more affected. But then they do forage in a slightly different way than with honeybees and bumblebees, as they t- don't tend to need those big patches. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. And yeah, I wish I had more time to, yeah. to sort of go into it because there's loads of questions that need answering. There are, yes. It's good that it's been identified though. And I, I guess that can inform us gardeners, but also at a bigger landscape scale, like I'm thinking about farmers in the future. Mm-hmm. So we can actually manage our big areas of farmland better for pollinators. And finally, in your new role here at the Natural History Museum, your results are really important in helping gardeners do the best for wildlife. And I know that the eDNA techniques are actually being applied here, right here in the wildlife gardens around the museum. And the gardens are being rebuilt at the moment and will be part of something called the Urban Nature Project. What is this project and what part are the new gardens going to be playing in it? So the Urban Nature Project is a huge movement and that's designed to connect um, over a million people across the UK to urban environments and nature in their urban environments. And sort of the biggest part of that project then is the complete redesign of the five acre site here at South Kensington. Um, So creating a big 
welcoming, accessible and sort of biologically diverse green space in the heart of London, showing sort of what can be done in this green space that we have. Um, and yeah, in the wildlife garden, we've got some really cool surveying uh, techniques. So doing eDNA of soil samples and also um, pitfall trapping and malaise trapping to do uh, invertebrate sampling. And we're also doing some acoustic monitoring. Mm -hmm. um, so monitoring wildlife through sound, which is really exciting. And yeah, the Urban Nature Project is is going to be delivering training and uh, providing resources to teachers and children running courses and all things like that. And my role sits within that because the as part of the Urban Nature Project, we have uh, co-designed a mass community science project with young people, but between young people and scientists. And it's you know, focused on urban nature. And we're going to be looking at the uh, impact of noise pollution on insects. So we're going to be using this new acoustic monitoring techniques that we've that we've got and has helped to be developed by the Urban Nature Project. And it's going to be a programme of activities where people can get involved in helping us answer this really important question about um, insects and noise pollution near roads. So um, if anybody wants to hear more about it, they can go to www.nhm.org ac.uk forward slash nature overheard fantastic well i think you're obviously a very busy person so we've kept you here long enough thank you so much for letting us come and interview you it's been genuinely fascinating and your research is wonderful and like you say it's opened up lots of lots more questions so hopefully other people are taking them and doing answering those <laughs> yeah thank you it's been it's been great chatting to you as well Thank you very much again to Dr. Abigail Lowe. If you want to find out more or get involved in the community science projects being run from the Natural History Museum, then search for the latest project called Nature Overheard online or follow links in the show notes, where we'll also have links to all the research we mentioned in the interview. We now have a few more thank yous to make to all the lovely people who have donated to our PayPal over the last few months. The podcast will always be respite from people trying to sell you something, so you will never have to hear an advert, but it does cost us quite a lot to produce, and we are helped massively by you listeners chucking us a few pounds. So let's roll the music and say thank you to... Martin Thomas. Kirsty Fox. Gail Pryor. Stephanie Hope. Linda Nichols. Judith Baird-Johnson. Grant King. Ian and Carol Potter. Gillian Rose Sophia Dale Kathy Taylor Sue Godden Oliver Watson Michael McBennett Eilish Hannah Mark Harrison Wild Inc Jenny Devine Jay Headley Colin Powis and Martin Thomas Thank you so much to all of you and also thanks for the lovely messages you've been sending with your donations. Uh, if you donate via PayPal, you can actually send us a message as part of it. And if you heard Martin Thomas's name twice, that's because he's the first person set up a recurring monthly donation, which is something you could do if you were so inclined. As Ellie said, we make no money from this podcast, but the donations help us cover things like the train fares for the interviews, hosting fees and all the rest, which sometimes leaves us out of pocket. So to support the show and make a donation, even if it's only a quid, click the link to our PayPal in the show notes. Native Plant of the Month time 
Woohoo! And this time we are talking about Veronica spicata, subspecies spicata, or commonly known as the spiked speedwell. The common name spiked speedwell comes from spicata, which means spiked, does that make sense? And speedwell, which is the common name for the whole genus, which includes all the little blue speedwells that you might find in your lawns or in hedgerows at this time of year. If you look carefully, there's loads of species out there that you can find growing right at home. The generic name Veronica is quite interesting. It's named after Saint Veronica, who gave a cloth to Jesus so he could wipe his brow. And apparently, some botanists thought certain plants in the family had markings on the leaves, which reminded them of the imprint Jesus' face made on the cloth. That is niche. Yeah, so it's it's not that the leaves look like Jesus's face, it's that the leaves look like the imprint Jesus's face made on a cloth. His face dirt. Yeah, yeah. So make <laughs> okay. of that what you will. There you go. Um, onto the description. It's a herbaceous perennial, so it's something that dies down in the autumn and winter and comes back every year. Uh, it grows in dense patches and the stems are up to about 30 centimetres tall. On these stems are green leaves. And all the new botanical terms I'm going to give you today are about the leaves. I'll read you the description of the leaves from the biological flora entry for the plant. Uh, and then I'm actually going to translate it into English. So here we go with an early botanical warning. Botany. Right, botanical now. <laughs> leaves decussate, lower leaves ovate or oval, crenate, sometimes doubly crenate, becoming linear lanceolate. Crenate serrate, or upper leaves, sometimes entire. I like you sounded a bit like you were doing the shipping forecast when you read that. You could do. You could totally do that. Botanical forecast. I mean, that means what? as much to most people as the shipping forecast does anyway. That's true, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's translate that into, into English. So decussate is about how the leaves are... I don't know if it's decussate or decussate, but I'm going to say decussate. It's about how the leaves are arranged on the stem. Now, in most plants, the leaves are either arranged alternatively up the stem, one after another, or on different sides opposite each other on the stem. In decussate plants, they're actually in pairs opposite each other, but the next pair up the stem is at a right angle to the first pair. So to imagine this, if it was a compass, the first pair would point north and south, and the next pair east and west, then the next pair north and south, and east and west, and back and forth as you go up the stem. Ovate, or oval, simply means egg-shaped. Crenate means the edge of the leaf has teeth, but that the teeth are rounded at the edge rather than pointed. And doubly crenate means each tooth has more than one rounded point. So to imagine this, think of a mountain range, or rather a, a range of hills. So you've got one big round-topped hill with smaller round-topped foothills at either side of it. Higher up the plant, the leaves become lanceolate, which means shaped like a lance or a spearhead. So high on the plant, instead of the leaves being egg-shaped, the leaves are actually longer than they are wide. And finally, in these higher leaves, the teeth at the edge can be pointy rather than rounded. So that's serrate, which means saw-toothed. Or sometimes actually entire, which is where the whole edge of the leaf is smooth. This plant has it all. It's got the whole <laughs> shebang. So to translate then, let's give the botany again first. So leaves decussate, lower leaves ovate or oval. Crenate, sometimes doubly crenate, becoming linear lanceolate. Crenate serrate, or upper leaves, sometimes entire. And then the translation in English, leaves arranged in pairs up the stem, each pair at 90 degrees to the next, like opposite directions on a compass. Lower leaves are egg-shaped and have rounded teeth on the edge. 
sometimes with smaller teeth on either side. Higher up the plant, the leaves are a different shape, becoming longer than they are wide, like the tip of a lance or a spear. On higher leaves, the edge can either have pointy teeth or can even be entirely smooth. So there you are, that's enough new words for one episode. As for the flower, out of the top of that leafy stem comes a lovely tall flower spike, usually a violet blue colour, sometimes white or pink, with masses of small flowers on each spike, and it is indeed a beautiful plant when it's in full bloom. We're talking about Veronica spicata subspecies spicata today, but there are actually two subspecies in the UK, the other being hybrida. Like lots of these plants we talk about, there's some disagreement whether they should really be considered separate subspecies, but in general hybrida is taller and altogether a more robust plant. If you're in the northwest of England and in Wales, you will tend to find hybrida, while in the east of England, particularly in central East Anglia, you get spicata. I like that northern hardness. It's like, yeah. Bigger, tougher. R- r- more robust. I'm from East Anglia. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Short and... <laughs> Weak. Weak. <laughs> you said it, Ben. I mean, come on. Anyway, unlike a lot of the species that we talk about, it's quite geographically restricted. So, you know, things like hawthorn are just everywhere. But with this plant, there are actually no wild populations. As far as I'm aware, in Scotland, you can get garden escapees, but no wild populations. And there's only one location in the whole of the island of Ireland, according to the latest Botanical Society's Plant Atlas. Outside the UK, it's found across Europe, but infrequently, and it's absent from the Mediterranean regions. It's got a northern distribution through Scandinavian countries and into central Siberia, then through Central Asia via Kazakhstan and on into Mongolia. In the UK, it's generally a lowland plant, with a maximum altitude of 400 metres at Ribblesdale in West Yorkshire, while in the Alps it's been found up to 1,850 metres above sea level. In the UK, it prefers craggy habitats like inland cliffs, river gorges and limestone pavements, which makes sense if you've ever been to Ribblesdale. That's the sort of habitat that they have there. Uh, It can also be found in grassland on shallow soils over chalk or limestone, especially on steep slopes. Elsewhere in Europe, it's been recorded on a wide variety of soils from alkaline to slightly acid, but whatever the substrate, it tends to occur where woodland would have trouble colonising. And in East Anglia, um, it might have survived thanks to river erosion actually keeping habitats open. Like a lot of the rarer plants in the UK, it's really a relic of the open tundra vegetation that receded after the last glaciation. So as the glaciers retreated, you got this tundra vegetation, but then the woodland moved in and the plants had to retreat further and further north. Um, But when they couldn't go north anymore, they basically went up. So they went up into these craggy areas and uh, places where the trees would have trouble colonising. So as such, it dislikes the shade that would come with tree cover, and it will happily grow in these really shallow soils, baked in full sun, and it's actually very tolerant of drought, although it does flower better with some summer rain. So now the bit you've all been waiting for, let's talk about the sexual antics of Veronica spicata. flowers of Veronica spicata are hermaphrodite, so they have both male and female organs. They're also protogynous, which means that the female organ ripens before the male. We've talked about this on the podcast before, so I'm not going to get into it, but basically it's a way to discourage the plant or each individual flower fertilising itself. And this plant is what's called an entomophilus species. We needed another klaxon there. That's not botanical. 
Okay, I take it back. Yeah, maybe I should invent another sort of insect klaxon or something. Because anything ento usually implies insects, as in entomology or entomologist. So entomophilus species are plants known to be insect pollinated. I suppose that is botanical in a way. I think so, because it's a way of describing a plant, isn't yeah. it? Is it? Yeah. yeah. So okay. I, I, okay, we We've only got one, you know, allowance of klaxons per episode. I like being right. Yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> you were right. It's rare. Okay. So, so basically an entomophilus species is one where insects are moving pollen from one plant to another, or certainly from one flower to another. However, despite its being protogynous, you know, which you think would discourage self-fertilisation, and the fact that insects should be moving pollen from one plant to another, it actually can be self-fertile, and it can pollinate itself if pollen from the flower immediately above another one because it's on this flower spike if that pollen drops down onto the female stigma of the flower below there's a long flowering period with records of wild plants flowering from june through to october and once pollinated each flower produces a capsule filled with seeds somewhere between two and 25 seeds per capsule and when the capsule is dry by late summer it bursts open and the seeds are shaken out by the wind or possibly actually carried away by ants Given that a plant has many flower spikes, each with 50 or more flowers, and with each flower producing up to 25 seeds, it's perfectly possible, of course, for a single established plant to produce thousands of seeds each summer. Seed germination has been found to be around 50%, and it's more common where the seeds don't have competition and where they're exposed to light, basically in exposed soils. The main form of expansion, however, is by the rhizomes, and these are creeping stems that go along the ground and they root away from the parent plant, creating these large clonal stands over a couple of years because each of the new plants that springs up from the rhizome is uh, genetically identical to the parent. So now you know all about the plant, where it grows, what it does, how it has sex. Let's talk about if it's any good for wildlife. It is a particular favourite of bumblebees, which is excellent because we love to see bumblebees in our gardens with loads of records of the early bumblebee, the buff and white-tailed bumblebees and many more species feeding from the plant. Uh, Yellow-legged mining bee and the pantaloon bee have also been recorded as pollinators and we did the pantaloon bee as part of our bee top trumps, didn't we? A couple of episodes ago. And I think I saw a yellow-legged mining bee in a garden a couple of weeks ago. Ooh, that's exciting. And I'm not going to go through the full list, but lots of other ground nesting bees have been found feeding from the plant too. It's actually a bit poor, I'm afraid, for the butterflies and moths. Boo. Yeah, not a good <laughs> one for you, Ellie. Um, with just a single record of it being munched by the caterpillar of a heath fritillary, uh, which we're unlikely to find in our gardens anyway. Quite a rare butterfly. It does have a few gall midges which feed on the leaves, but really it's a particularly good plant for bees. So if you want more bees in your garden, both solitary and social then this is a great, great plant to try. And what sort of garden would it suit? Well, it can grow in grassland, but only on very poor soils. So it's not something we'd recommend for your garden meadows or flowering lawns. But it does make a spectacular plant in a garden border. So you can plant it in a big clump, or you can just have a couple in a pot. And there's lots of cultivated garden varieties of this plant uh, that come in colours from deep violet blue through to powder pinks and even white with some varieties. Like I said, it makes a substantial clump when it's established. It's got quite a long flowering period too, and it would really suit somewhere in full sun, especially if you're prone to drought. Now, the native species is beautiful in its own right. That's the subspecies spicata that we've been talking about, but the garden varieties tend to be developed from the larger hybrid subspecies. Um, So like I said, they're a bit larger, a bit more robust. And so if you are putting them in a mixed garden border, I'd probably go for one of those. I've got a question. When, Go on. 
when we take Veronica Spicata and we turn it into a garden hybrid, do you know if it's still fertile? Does it, does it still produce the same quantity of pollen and nectar? Or Because sometimes they can be sterile and they can have not as much going on for wildlife. I don't know. The hybrider subspecies is not a cultivated hybrid. No. So it's a, a subspecies in its own right, which can absolutely produce seed and plenty yeah. of pollen and nectar. So so that's fine. And I think they've just been, they're just like colour forms that have been developed from that. Okay. So I'm not certain, but yeah. I think that they're, they're fine. Bro. So if you have a sunny spot that you're trying to fill, then there are full notes on garden varieties, cultivation and propagation in our next newsletter. So you'll get all the links to everything you want to know for growing it there. And you can sign up for our newsletter for free at wildlifegardenpod.com. That's about it for today, everyone. It's great to be back in your ears. And we hope that we've been doing loads and loads of wildlife gardening. In the next episode, I am delighted to tell you that we are going to be covering sex in the garden. (laughs) Not between humans. (laughs) (laughs) But we thought, we do obviously the sexual antics of plants, which is great. But the birds do it, the bees do it, everything does it. And we just thought we'd look at the weird and wonderful ways that creatures court and procreate in our garden spaces and what we can do to help them along their way. Yeah, and let me tell you, there is some mad stuff that goes on. (laughs) (laughs) Ben's in the know, worryingly. But I think you're going to be more interested in, yeah, how we can actually help. Because some of the ways are quite surprising. Anyway, we'll leave that till next time. Something to whet your whistles. (laughs) (laughs) To find out more about what we've been talking about today, all the links that we've discussed are now actually in the description for every episode, which you can find on your podcast app. So just... Scroll down on this episode as you're listening to it now. Click on the description and all the links should be in there. But you can, of course, find everything and, as I said, sign up to the newsletter on wildlifegardenpod.com. Leave us a review on iTunes. That would be great. When we get reviews on iTunes and elsewhere, um, it pushes us up the the podcast charts. And we're in the top 10 this week for gardening. What? Mm -hmm. We haven't... That's amazing. Yeah, it comes and goes. But yeah. yeah, we've had some lovely, lovely reviews recently. So yeah, please leave us one. And I suppose until the next time, keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye. Bye.